But I would invite you, if you would, to turn to Jonah chapter 3, and we are going to begin in verse 5. I'm going to read that text in a minute, Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. But before I do, let me read you a verse from Romans chapter 14. Just going to read one verse, and I'd ask you to hear it. Romans 14, just verse 4. Sorry, Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. Paul writes this to the church. This is helpful for us this morning. He says, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15 verse 4. Whatever was written was written for our instruction, for our endurance, and that through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Hope. And I want to just tell you the good news this morning. This is an unbelievable, hopeful text that we turn to. Last week, not so much, if you were here. We looked at the wrath of God and we talked about the message that Jonah brought to the people of Nineveh. There is so much hope here. In a way, we need to be very honest and say it's an unexpected amount of hope. But it's meant for our encouragement. And in the text that we're about to read, there is a revival. There is reformation. There is repentance. There's an awakening. There's a stirring that man could not create on his own. And we believe in a sovereign God of grace and mercy. And I just have, I have a hope this morning that you will be encouraged in a way that you don't think is possible at what God can do, not only in your heart, in your home, in this community, and in our church. If we let this text speak to us as it declares how God works. So would you turn with me to Jonah 3? And I'd ask you to stand if you would, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. Jonah 3, verses 5 to 10. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way And from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you give us the encouragement and the hope to to endure to live steadfastly before you in light of the way that you declare that you work. We ask for an unexpected work of your spirit in our hearts, in our homes, in our church family, in the community in which we serve in these times. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you see this picture of community-wide universal repentance, and I want to ask an opening question that we'll look at at the end. What would that be like? Like, what would that be like, what we just read, if you were there? Next question, 
want to enter into it this morning is, can we plan something like this? Like, could, could, come on, God, can we not make this happen? Because I would love to be a part of it, wouldn't you? 19th century revivalist Charles Finney, Charles Grandison Finney, he actually would answer that question and say, yes, we can plan something like this. Finney uh, believed that we could use what he called the new measures that would create a context for revival, repentance, and reformation to happen. In his uh, work called Lectures on Revival, Charles Finney argued that revival, and I quote, is not a miracle. It is not dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of constituted means. Now, Finney was not celebrated in most seminaries that pastors and churches, I would hope you would find the gospel preached at. Uh, he's not celebrated as an orthodox theologian by any stretch. But Finney was a revivalist. He said, you can create a revival. Just do the right things. Put all the ingredients in the pot and do them in the right order and it will happen. Let me give you some of his pragmatic new measures. Base your sermons on sound psychological principles. If you get people to think deeply about things they're already thinking deeply about, you can create some feelings and those feelings could lead to a revival. Have protracted meetings. Finney was kind of the, the archetype of consecutive days, tent meetings, right? Each night, you can gain some momentum in that way. He said you can secure decisions of repentant sinners by using the anxious bench. Where Finney would lead revivals, he'd have a bench up front. It was kind of like the beginning of the altar call movement. He'd have a bench up front. And during the preaching, if you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you were to come and sit on that bench and Finney himself would stop preaching to the masses and he would come and he'd preach to you. People would see that and they would respond in kind. He said one of his new measures was to use music to affect the mood of the people and to establish their frame of mind. I don't know what you think about that. Finney said, yes, indeed, we can create a work of God's spirit with all the right ingredients. But I, I, would, I would question, I don't trust myself, my deceptive heart within me. Can I really create a context in which someone else repents of their sin before a holy God? Can I make someone else believe? Because it seems like when the scriptures teach, natural man cannot conceive of the things of the spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2. Jesus says, if I don't send the Holy Spirit to convince and convict you of truth, you, you won't believe. Contrast Charles Finney with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, in the Great Awakening of the 18th century, he wrote his biography of those revivals. He called it this. It was a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. That's what Edwards' biography was called. He wrote about what happened at his congregational church in Northampton, Massachusetts. It was after a year of Edwards preaching on justification by faith alone that God would declare grace alone, a sinner saved and de declare righteous in his sight by faith only. And we're not righteous. How can that be? And the more he preached the declaration of grace by faith alone, of righteousness by faith alone, excuse me, a work broke out. And he said this in his biography, there was scarcely a single person in town old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. For a year in 1733, this surprising work happened all across the city of Northampton, Massachusetts. And then it spread from 1733 to 1740. New England became a, a, a place of spontaneous revival breaking out where people repented of their sin and longed for the righteous covering of Jesus over their sin. 
It shouldn't surprise us. It sounds a little bit like 2 Chronicles chapter 34. You may recall when Josiah the king recovered the lost book of the law and he himself read it and he tore his clothes and then he read it before the people. They read it for a month straight and people realized how they digressed from the perfect standard of a holy God and as he read it, people repented and sat in sackcloth and ashes, much the same of what we just read. God brought about community unplanned revival when his word was recovered. Here we are in Jonah 3. And just like the Great Awakening or just like Josiah's revival, what happens in Nineveh happens when the word of God is declared. That's all that happens. That's all that we see. God doesn't need a bunch of ingredients put together in the right pot, used in the right order. To do something, he uses his word declared. The first time I preached the book of Jonah was 2004. I had just been ordained in the ministry. I was at Harmony Presbyterian Church 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away. And I looked at a congregation with far less than half of what is in this room right now. That was the entire congregation. And I remember saying to them, because I actually recovered some of my notes, so I probably said it, the unchanging God of Jonah is able to bring personal repentance, community revival, fill the seats of repent with repentant sinners because we are opening up his word. He's able to do that. Last Lord's Day, I was a part of an uh, installation commission for Joel Cavanaugh, who's preached here before. He's at Arcadia Presbyterian Church just down the street from Harmony. And again, it was, a, it was a few dozen people or less. So happy to have a pastor be called into the pulpit after some time without a pastor. And I was called to give the charge to the congregation. And I said the same thing. If you have a desire in your heart for God's word to be opened in this place, and it is his word that is declared, then guess what God delights to do should he choose it? Turn repentant sinners to himself and bring communal revival. Even in a tiny little, tiny little building on the edge of a tiny town, God works by his word. So what do you think the message is for us this morning? Here we are opening up his word. He has not changed in how he works. If we open up his word, my expectation is he is going to bring you and me to continual and deeper and deeper repentance of how we violate his holiness and show us a greater and greater uh, all-encompassing understanding of his mercy, his forgiveness, the righteousness by which he views us, the freedom in which we live. Our God is the unchanging God of Jonah. This text actually touches ministry philosophy, in my opinion. I recall, as I've told you a few times before, that when we were planting a church in Pennsylvania, one of the things that would, would happen is we would get together on a monthly basis. All the church planters would go to Philadelphia. We'd come from New York City, from New Jersey. It was a church planter community. We'd get together and we would have a speaker, but then we'd have roundtable discussions and we'd talk about issues that were on the hearts of church planters. It might be financial challenges. It might be building rent challenges. It might be the secular world around us. It might be music stuff. It might be programs. But the longer I was a part of it, I saw God do great things in the lives of friends and church planners and their churches, but I also started to get sick to my stomach going to these things. Because in every place we went, we were talking about what should we do to make sure a, a work of God happens. And you know what we rarely talked about? And this was trans-denominational. I'm not throwing any denomination under the bus. But you know what we rarely talked about? Are you preaching God's word and only his word with the integrity and the zeal by which it should be declared? And are you letting God's Holy Spirit then use it the way he would choose to use it? We never talked about that. But we talked about logos and websites and locations and demographic research. 
at Christ Community Church, I just hope you know that I believe God is at work in your hearts and in your homes, and I've seen it. But his method of work is by his word being brought to bear in our personal lives as well as his word being brought to bear in this community. And that's the one bullet in the chamber. That's all we got is preach his gospel from his word. And I hope you'll see toward the end of our time together this morning, you and I should be very called out if you are not in his word and you're also not speaking his word to someone else. Shame on us if we speak anything but his word when someone talks to us about stress or a trial in their life. But oh, the power if his word is communicated through his servants into their culture. So let's jump in. We see that Jonah was recommissioned. We saw that last week. We have a preacher recommissioned. God's not going to say to Jonah anything new. He's not going to do anything new. He says, go call out the exact message I told you to call out. Jonah does that very thing. He speaks the exact five Hebrew words God tells him to speak. We saw last week it was a message of wrath. And what we camped out on last Sunday, and I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it if you didn't, the message of God's wrath is a corollary necessary part of the message of his love and his mercy. Period. We cannot offer people the hope of rescue if they don't believe they need to be rescued from the wrath of a holy God who says there's a cost to sin. And so God sends a message of wrath to Nineveh and they experience his mercy because the message was received for what it was. But I want you to understand with me the exact word of God is declared. And that's a pattern all throughout scripture. Do you remember young, young Samuel the prophet? Remember the little boy that was in Eli's house? Hannah and Elkanah were hoping they could have a child. They hadn't had a child. And they go and pray before the, the priest Eli and say, if God will just give us a child, we will give that child to the service of the Lord. And so young Samuel is born. He's raised up in the house of a crooked priesthood. Do you recall that? And remember that night where young Samuel hears a voice talking to him while he's asleep? And he runs to Eli the priest and says, you called? And Eli says, no, I didn't call. You go back to sleep. Happens again. He hears a voice. He gets up and he runs to the high priest and says, you called? No, I didn't call. Go to bed. Leave me alone. In my house, it's even grumpier than that after the second time. Third time, Samuel goes to Eli and says, you called. And Eli says, it's not me who's calling you. The Lord is speaking to you. I want you to listen to what he says. And in the morning, come tell me, Word for word, what he tells you. And you got to remember in, the, in that time, remember how the book of 1 Samuel starts? The word of the Lord was rare in those days. It's a bankrupt, empty time. The priesthood's corrupt. Everything's gone to pot. And so Samuel hears the word of the Lord. He wakes up the next morning. He goes to Eli, and Eli says, tell me exactly what God told you. The exact words. You remember what those words were? Total judgment. Eli, God is about to decimate your house. The priesthood is about to be destroyed. Your sons are going to die. You're going to die. God has turned his back on you. That was the word. And you know how the book proceeds after that? The word of the Lord returned to his people because there was a servant who would speak just exactly what God said the word said. And that's going to lead on toward God raising up David the king through Samuel the prophet. I mean, the word of God spoken as the word of God is the way in which God works. And so that's what we see here. And so we see in verse 5, a people are reached. The people of Nineveh. Remember AJ's first message weeks ago. The people of Nineveh, chapter 1, verse 2, are described. It's an evil place. It was a gross empire, the Assyrians were. What they did to oppress their enemies, the way that they, they just lived off of injustice is very evident in the annals of history. 
The very last verse of this entire book says this. It says the people of Nineveh could not tell the difference between their left hand and their right hand. And that's not just because they were immature and they couldn't figure out dexterity. They literally didn't know right from wrong. Fools say in their heart there is no God. Fools who have no compass. That's the people of Nineveh to whom Jonah was sent. A wicked people. And he goes to town and I want you to understand that God chooses to convert a city. Some of you are corporate leaders. As I look at this, I think of some of the work I do outside the church and I think of the days, again, back to church planting. And I remember being told, what's your action plan? You got a big project, what's your action plan? What's gonna go first? Don't put what's seventh, number two, it needs to go number seven. What's the preceding things to get to number seven? Where's the action plan? There is no action plan here. He just opens up his mouth and speaks as God has led him. And we read in verse five that they believed not Jonah. They didn't believe some washed up prophet. They didn't believe some angry, cynical man. We are told they believed the words as coming from God himself. People of God here, I want you to know that if we would see God do a work in your house, in your home, in this church, in this community, it starts with us believing that God will convince people that when her, his word is spoken, it's his word, not the word of the speaker. Second uh, Peter 1.21, Peter says, Prophecy never came by the will of any man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Or Paul celebrated when the word went to the people of Thessalonica. And here's what he said. He said, I thank God without ceasing. When you received the word which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it very much was. In truth, it was the word of God. I want to just ask you, if you believe that no individual heart or no collective group of people will experience the work of God's Holy Spirit apart from a very small reality, which is a big thing, the first reality of believing that the word they hear is from God himself. Do you believe that that's how God works? When we do apologetics or we try to convince someone who's not convinced of the scriptures, do what you can, do what you must graciously and cogently like Clinton did Friday night. What a great study on Islam and Christianity. But at the end of the day, it's the word of God that will convince a sinner who doesn't believe there's a God that there's a word to be listened to. And that's what we see here. Wouldn't we all seek God a little differently on our daily, daily way of living if we believe that to the core? Would you treat people differently at work and how you listen to what they say and what you speak to them in response? If you believe this to your core, would you speak differently to people in this very church if they text you and tell you they're having a bad day, they're upset about somebody else's attitude? Would you say something a little bit different if you really believe that God convinces his people that his words are his word and then he uses that word spoken in their life? Would you speak differently? Would you study God's word differently? I think we should and I think we must. Look at what happens here. Verse five makes it sound like it's grassroots, which I think is awesome. That basically the word of God just spread until the culture tipped. You see that in verse five? I and mean, it's just awesome. I could give a lot of stories from Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, the book. It's a great work, especially when I think of how sometimes God works in grassroots ways. But let me also share with you something in Hebrew, uh, the way Hebrew writers would often write, Old Testament especially you'd see that oftentimes a summary statement is given before the sequence of events that explained how it happened. So in verse 5, you have this thought that the word of God spread across the, the place of Nineveh. Verse 6 says the word reached the king. 
And then verse 6 tells us how it actually fully spread. The king gives a proclamation. There's one true God and he may destroy us. We must repent and I will take off my robe and I will sit in the dust. I will dethrone myself because apparently there's only one king and there's only one kind of glory and I don't have it. And so we see that the the revival spread both in some ways by grassroots, person to person, but also by proclamation of God converting the king. And I want you to see with me that, uh, what's hard to see in English, but see it uh, very clearly, that the, the word robe in Hebrew is actually the word glory. So I want you to think with me about when the king derobes himself, he's functionally setting aside his own glory. And he's getting down from his throne. And we're going to talk in a little bit about what repentance is, but I would just give you a big summary word of it. Repentance is when someone says, God, I I ask for you to forgive me for trying to be on the throne of my own life and I want to dethrone myself and my interpretation and my way of living for myself. And so notice that when the king gets down, he calls for a total society-wide act of repentance. I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it, that he, he tells them to dress up their animals in sackcloth, sackcloth? He tells the animals to fast with the people. And I don't want to unpack that too much. I also don't want you to just say, well, that's weird. What does Romans 8 say about all creation groaning for redemption? There's there are problems in a broken world of sin that long for rescue from a righteous, glorious king. And so the king of Nineveh, really of Assyria, mandates that all creation get involved in the act of repentance. And then we read that he tells everyone to cry out with force. Do you see that? Maybe your translation says to cry out mightily. Have you ever cried out mightily to God? Never mind your personality. Have you ever mightily called out to God and said, would you have mercy on me? Because if you don't have mercy on me, I have no hope. Look at the call to repentance the king gives. It's total. It's audible. That's what he says. Call out audibly. It's immediate. Do it right now. It's acting them to believe something. Believe that God might turn if you do this. It's tangible. He actually gets off of his throne and declothes himself so that he realizes who he actually is in the sight of God. So it's tangible. It's total. Calls all the animals to participate. I would ask you, Christian, like, does that at all sound familiar to, to you for what you might experience on a rhythmic basis or at least once in your life when God called you to himself from the death of the trespasses and sins that are due his wrath? Is this foreign to us? Have you ever called out mightily about your whole life about the world, about the way you think, about the movies you watch, about the pets in your house, about your car that you want, about your entitlement, about everything that you can think of that you say, it's my world and I own it. Have you asked for God to take all of that from you because you repent of how it makes you live as though you depend on yourself and not for him? That's what we have here. The Puritan prayers we pray on Sunday mornings exhibit some force. Our context might not be that forceful, but 
Sometimes the words might help you. I would just plead with you, Christian, read this later and say, God, give me the force of repentance that your Holy Spirit would lead me to have. The king of Nineveh actually asked for God's people to be specific in their repentance. Let me show you where that is. The word for violence has a very specific nuance of injustice. So when he says, cry out, maybe God will turn, cry out and, and confess the violence that we live with in this place. He's talking about specific sin. We are specifically incredibly unjust place and I've been the leader of it. So one of, one of the things we take away from that is, Christian, do you specifically ask for God to forgive you of things? Maybe for you it's not injustice. It's not having no integrity at work. Maybe it's lust of your flesh. Maybe it's sloth. Maybe it's a constancy of slander. But it's specific. There is no sin so small that we ought not be specific about it as though God doesn't care. It deserves his wrath. There also is no sin so big that if we get specific about it, God won't give us an understanding of how he has washed and covered that through the blood of Jesus. But repentance is not vague. It's not, God, forgive me for being so bad and I want to feel really bad about being so bad. God, I'm, a, I'm an individual and I specifically violate your holy law with constancy. Would you show me that I would turn from it? Well, what happens then when they do so? We see that God relents. That's the third point. We have this, this picture of a God who relents. The very last sentence of the king is, who knows if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we might not perish? Who knows is a good question for the king to ask because there was no promise in Jonah's word. Not at all. There was no anticipation of if we stop being the way we are, maybe he won't destroy us. So the king says, who knows? And we read that God saw what they did and he relented. So we ask a question, well, does that mean that God saves them by works? No, not at all. Because what happens in verse 5 precedes what they do in verse 10. Verse 5, they believed God. And their belief looked like a turning from the things they put their hope and their meaning in. So when God sees them turn, which is a work, which is an act, away from something, it's because they believed who he is. But the question I want us to camp out on at the very close, really, is what do we make of this thought that, that maybe God will change his mind? Maybe God will relent. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should change his mind. So God doesn't change his mind here, so what happens then if he didn't change his mind? Well, first of all, notice with me that God said that he would destroy an unrepentant Nineveh. That's what he said. Do we have an unrepentant Nineveh? No, we do not have an unrepentant Nineveh. We have a people who've turned to God for mercy. And what we have in God's word against Nineveh is that Nineveh as they were is about to be destroyed, but Nineveh is no longer as they were. So God, in a way, doesn't relent in the sense of change his mind. But I want us to think holistically, and this is going to lead us right into the gospel of Jesus. Did God change, or does God change his mind at all when he doesn't destroy Sinners who repent? Not at all. Is the gospel not the message that the sin of those who cry out to God for mercy, the gross injustice in our life, the lust, the, the, the things of our flesh that we are worthy 
of suffering the infliction of the wrath of God, is it ever just set aside and God says, oh, I'm, I'm just not concerned about it anymore? Is that what relent means? He placed it squarely on his own son for those who turn and repent. Isaiah 53, God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Colossians chapter 1 and 2, your sins were nailed to the cross, Paul says. He gives us that image. There is no sense at all in which God relents from the punishment due sinners. He redirects it onto our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when I close this up, I want to ask you kind of a big question, philosophical anyway. You ever ask the question, what are we doing here? And I don't mean here as in the preaching time. What are we doing here as a church, downtown Johnson City, a group of people that gather and spend time in relationship with each other. We call you to speak his word to one another. We ask for God to equip you so when you go out of the places he sent you, you can be faithful where he's put you, whether it's a corporate workspace, working for a city government, at home with your children, on your neighborhood streets. What are we doing here? What's it all about? I want to speak with zeal and say, I hope that when I ask that question, you don't have much need to pause to think of an answer. We want this to happen. That's what I'm doing here. Because God, if he changes the heart of a sinner, deserves his wrath. That sinner longs for God to do that in the circles of influence of people we love. Who longs for it to happen in the circle of influence of the people that they love. Do you believe with me that we serve a God of community awakening? And that we can't create it on our own. It's his sovereign work to do that by his Holy Spirit's changing lives. But do we pray for the Spirit of Christ to do that? Is that what you're doing here? Between now and the day when Jesus returns to set up his righteous kingdom, you're asking for God to let you and I participate in him turning people and communities like what we see in this picture. Do you long for God to send community awakening to this place? If so, are you in his word? Are you a messenger of his word? Even if it's the most basic things, the king of Nineveh didn't know a lot, but he knew enough to speak and tell, God's, tell his people to respond to the word he'd heard. Let me read to you from the prophet Joel. Sounds very similar. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent? Same words from a different prophet. Who knows is a question that introduces people to the gospel. Do you know that? It's the best question. Who knows? A person who's been humbled enough by an understanding of God's wrath gets to the point, they say, I've broken so many constant realities of his way of, of living and his holiness. Who knows if he'll forgive me? Like at what point has Jim sinned one too many times and I don't deserve his mercy? Who knows? And I want you to understand with me, that's a question all through the Bible, isn't it? Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 and they say, what shall we do? Repent and believe the gospel. Who knows if 
you'll experience that cleansing as you turn and repent. The Pharisee and the tax collector, we looked at it last week, Luke 18. The Pharisee says, I'm pretty confident I'm good to go. The tax collector beats his chest and says, who knows if he'll receive me, but I need his mercy. The prodigal son has wandered away from the father and squandered everything. He's eating from the pig slop. And what does he say to himself before he goes back to his father? Who knows, maybe my father will receive me as even just one of his servants, but I'm gonna go back and ask for his mercy. Peter, when Jesus said to him, hey, do you boys wanna leave like all the rest of them? What does Peter say? You have the words of eternal life. To where else do we turn? There's either mercy in you or there's no mercy at all. Who knows? But I turn to you. The captain of the very boat that Jonah was on says, cry out to his God. Who knows, maybe his God will hear us. It's a great gospel question. And sinner, if you've been led to a place of understanding what your sin deserves, you do get to a place where you say, I've done it again. Who knows if he'll receive me and what's the answer the gospel gives us? You can know because his son bore your sin on his cross and it was all verified by his resurrection so you can know. And then if we live the life of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, let's go back to the first question I asked. What would it be like? There's a story in the Bible and I'm gonna close up with it. I think it's what it would be like. A little different than the context. Ezra chapter three. The people of God are led after their time of exile back into the land. And everything's been destroyed. And you see a scene in Ezra chapter three where the temple's gonna be built again and the remaining remnants are excited that they get to worship God again at the temple spot. And it says that they built the foundation of the temple and all God's people came together to worship and they, they read his law and it was gonna be glorious. And the most amazing description is given in Ezra chapter three. It says that some of the people were shouting with songs of joy because God had shown his goodness to his people when they were back in the land. And it said that other people that were there that remembered the original temple before exile, they were weeping. And then the Bible says this, you could not distinguish the sound of those who were weeping from those who were shouting. That's what I pray for. In your home, in my home, what does it look like if some of us are, are shouting because we understand God's grace and some of us are, are beating our chest and weeping and saying, I'm so sick of not being as sanctified as I should. Who knows if he's gonna just cast me out because I'm worthy of his wrath. And then collectively, our family unit, your family unit, this church is a body, we come together and what are we experiencing? What is that called? It's a, it's a surprising work of revival is what it is. Pray for it. Ask for God to convince you to pray for it. Be in his word because you anticipate it. Be a messenger of his word when you don't know what else to say to someone. Would God do that work even now this morning? So let me, let me close this up in prayer. Father, would you convince us that your word works? Would you do in this room in this church community, 
in this city, in this region, what we see you chose to do in Nineveh? Would we not be afraid to ask that? Would you turn repentant sinners to yourself? Would you show that you've relented of bringing wrath on our sin because you displaced it onto your own son for those who turn and repent and come to you? Would the question, who knows, be a real application question in the life of a, a casual, autopilot Christian who might be in this room not really grieving of sin and just living in it? And we are all prone to that, so would you forgive us? And when we cry out, who knows, would we be reminded of your affection for us in Christ? And would we turn unto you and your worship alone? Would we dethrone ourselves? Would you do a work of communal awakening by your spirit through your word in this place? That is our prayer this morning. Would we be encouraged to hope for it? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, scripture says that he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread or drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not the table of Christ Community Church or the Presbyterian Church in America. This is the table of those who by, by God's Holy Spirit have heard the word and professed your faith that your sins are worthy of his wrath. But he, he provided a substitute. That substitute was Christ our Lord who bore all of our sin because God wasn't going to turn from his own people. And Jesus proved what he did by his own resurrection. If you rest in that, this table is for you. Would this side please come to this table? Would this side please come to that table? And as a reminder, the light drink in the tray is grape juice and the dark drink is wine. Let me pray. Father, nourish us now by this sacrament. Would we taste and see that you are good? Thank you for what you've accomplished for us in Jesus. Bring about renewal, repentance, revival individually. And as we now participate, would every heart that participates be given a new desire to live out the repentance and faith that is ours in the gospel until we see you face to face and we are changed with nothing more to repent of. We long for that, but until that day, would we worship in spirit and truth, repentant, believing sinners, saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. Give us that gift this morning in Christ's name I pray. Amen.